Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Devi Laskar. Devi is a writer and poet whose debut novel, The Atlas of Reds and Blues, was the winner of the 2020 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature and Crook's Corner Book Prize, among other honors. Her second novel, Circa, follows a young Indian American woman named Hira. She and her best friends, siblings Marie and Marco, tease the fun out of life through acts of teenage delinquency until, on the cusp of her 18th birthday, Tragedy strikes and changes everything. We spoke with Devi about the novel and her journey writing it. So joining us in our podcast right now, we have Devi Laskar, and she is the author of Circa. And Devi, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We are happy to have you. Um, So one of the first things that struck me as I read the novel was the um, unusual choice in narration. Um, So why did you choose to write it in a second person narration style? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, so <laughs> you don't do that uh, very often. Yeah. So you know, I started this story way back in 1994, and um, over the years, I've tried everything. I tried first person and third person and present tense and simple past, and I did all these different iterations, and it wasn't quite right. And then um, when I sat down to kind of rethink this novel um, after my debut novel came out a few years ago, my uh, classmate from graduate school, uh, Julie Atsuka, had published The Buddha in the Attic. Mm -hmm. And it's this really brilliant novel about the Japanese war brides, you know, in the years before they came uh, or the years before World War II as they came to the United States. And um, she did first person plural. It was we, and it was amazing, right? And I was like, this is the coolest thing since sliced bread. And so (laughs) I tried that very hard for several months. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do first person plural. But I couldn't. It didn't quite work. And then I happened to stumble upon you. And you is wonderful because it is doing two jobs at once. It is at once reflexive, so it's I, right? But it's Mm -hmm. also you, the reader, and it draws the reader in and it collapses the distance between the narrator and the audience. And I was really excited by that, so I decided to give that a shot. Yeah, it kind of puts you in the perspective of the narrator in a way that, you know, I or we or she or they doesn't really do in quite the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really excited by that because I was like, you know, I want this to be experiential. And I think there'll be more sympathy for my narrator if they're right there in the room going through it, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know you've been working on Circa for a while, um, although I didn't realize it was quite that long, 1994. That's quite a labor of love there. Um, and I know that there was... Um, You had early drafts of Circa that you lost on a laptop that was taken in a raid, uh, which was the basis of your uh, debut novel, The Atlas of Reds and Blues. Um, So what was the process of recreating that novel like? Because you'd spent so much time with it, had these drafts, and then 
it's all gone. That, you still had it all up in your head. So like, did that, was it almost like a fresh start in a way? Did, did it allow you room to explore? Was there a loss? Like, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I did. I lost everything um, in 2010. And um, I will just say that uh, for the first year after the raid, I wasn't doing much writing, right? Mm-hmm. I was busy corralling my family and, and trying to figure things out. And so in June of 2011, I was like, well, I'm a writer. I should write. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat down and I found that I couldn't, you know, um, I was still too discombobulated and I didn't know how to do that. So I have a really good friend in Atlanta who knew I was a photographer. And so she Mm -hmm. said, okay, let's do this. Why don't you take a new photo every day and then caption it or title it, right? And then post it. We will hold you accountable. I bet you your words will come back. And I am a Mm -hmm. poet first. So I started on June 23rd, 2011, and I do it to this day. And wow. yeah, and um, and so I, after a year, my poetry came back. And after a couple more years, my prose came back. So, you know, I don't really believe in catharsis. So nothing I ever write is going to make me feel better for what had happened to us. But I was just relieved that I was able to write, you know, that was like, I thought that one might be gone. And I was really happy that I was able to write. And so when I got, when I got through Atlas and it had come out and I was like, okay, what am I going to do next? And I remembered the story. And when I started the story, um, the the book is dedicated to my really old friend, Susan Freiberg, who has passed away. Um, but when I started this story, Susan was very much alive. And so it was more a story about us, a story about these friends and um, over the years. And then she passed away. Um, uh, and then over the years, it sort of morphed. You know, like I said, I've been trying like first person and third person and and then with the raid and and the fact that I lost most of it, you know, I was like, you know, now I'm just going to write what I want and I'm going to let go of like all the true things and write about the heart of our friendship. Right. Mm. And, you know, start over. And so, you know, there are a couple things that are true to my friendship with Susan, right? So for example, we played the Waltons game that's that's in the book, right? And mm-hmm. um and uh we we were obsessed with the Wizard of Oz together, right? And so Love. so yeah, right? And so I I kept those things, but then I just and I kept some of the things like she loved gladioli, so that's the flower that's mentioned a lot in the book. Um but I, I just let go of the truth and and I just read the story and that's that's how it came about. And I was just really happy that it's out in the world because it would have been a shame, right, to to not have it be out in the world and to have it be mm-hmm. lost forever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a Wizard of Oz sidebar. I actually was at a Halloween party last night and we did a big group costume and I was the Emerald City. So, oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> funny we're talking about the Wizard of Oz because I'm like, oh, I was just in all green last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's so fun is that um, a friend of mine, uh, she was uh, teaching us a, a number of years ago, she was teaching us like perspective, right? She was mm-hmm. so 
So she said, you know, I once read in TV guides, somebody described the Wizard of Oz movie as a young girl runs away from home, travels to a new land, kills someone, gains three accomplices and kills again before returning home. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) that's actually the plot of the Wizard of Oz. And they keep calling it a children's movie. <laughs> it is a very, it's, when you think about perspective, it's an interesting exercise there. Right. <laughs> um, but something you said earlier, I want to come back to, and I, because I did want to ask you about this, um, when you talked about the the truth of your experience in writing Circa, uh, because both Circa and the Atlas of Reds and Blues um, are based off of experiences in your own life. So as a writer, how do you balance telling the truth of that experience and then also at a certain point allowing the story to go in its different direction and be its own thing and say what you want to say without being bogged down by sort of the the real life aspects of it oh sure that's such a great question you know i used to be a reporter um Mm -hmm. so when i first started writing fiction I was really hung up on the truth, right? Because I used to be a reporter. So if my daughter said something funny and it was a Wednesday at two o'clock and she was wearing a pink dress, you better believe all of those (laughs) things were going to be in there, right? Because that was like, okay, I just have to be as accurate as possible. And then, you know, what happened was over the years, as I kept writing, I'm like, well, it's not really important that that it was Wednesday at two o'clock. And it's actually not important what she was wearing, but what she said was really important to me. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take it out of the context of the truth of the of of when she said it, but apply it to the story that I'm writing. And I felt like that was fine. Um, You know. I'm not doing journalism. I'm what I'm, I, and it took me a long time to, uh, to arrive there. You know, when I first started writing my poems and my prose, I kept going, oh no, my journalism is infecting my prose, you know? (laughs) And I, um, and I was at this uh, Vona workshop, uh, Voices of Our Nation's Arts, and the teacher Uh, was like, no, no, you're using the wrong I word. And I was like, what's that? And she's like, you're not infecting it. You're informing it. She's like, you know, you're a poet Mm -hmm. and you're a reporter. You can't get rid of one part of you to write your prose. Just accept that this is just how you look at things. It is informing the way you write. And, you know, you're going to take what you're going to take and you're going to jettison the rest and it's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I think I think that's such an interesting um, background you bring to your writing that you are both a poet and a journalist. Um, both of those in different ways are very economical as far as word count. Um, and Circa is such a short novel itself. Um, was it was it always going to be that short? Was it longer and you had to whittle it down? Um, what, what was that length like? Yeah, that? that's such a good question. Um, well, you know, when I was writing it as a first person, more conversational piece, it, it, it achieved like what I would consider, it was a short novel status, right? And it did get a little bit longer, but then what I noticed is over the years is that I 
really can't stand the part of the book that I'm reading, you know, whatever I'm reading, where they go into something that I find is like so gratuitous that my eyes glaze over and I start to think about dinner, you know? <laughs> so, so I was like, I want to get rid of those moments in my book, right? Where And mm-hmm. one of the things is one of my poetry teachers um, in the 90s, uh, she was a big believer in oral tradition. So um, her name was Lucille Clifton, and she she like really talked about how people used to pass down their stories, right? And so she's like, before books, before the tablet, before the computer, you know, how do we do these things? You know, we sat around in the evening, we told each other stories over and over again until somebody picked it up and carried it forward and told somebody new. And she's like, you know, One of the most important things you can do as you're writing your book is you can read your work out loud because when you're reading out loud, you're getting a different experience because as writers, we rely so heavily on the eyes, right? Everything is an observation. And she's like, but if you're listening, then you're experiencing it in a different way. And if you're reading your book out loud to yourself and your tongue trips or you stumble, all that is is an indication of incorrect word choice mm. and it is an opportunity to, to fix it, right? And so you I hear really the rhythm those, of the words. Yeah, exactly. And so I so that's what I did. And and as I was doing that, like I read Atlas to myself twice and I read Circuit to myself twice during the editing processes and and it did make it shorter and it made it stronger I think because I was like oh I don't want this because it doesn't sound right and it's going on too long and I'm starting to think about what I'm making for dinner and (laughs) that's my that's my internal cue that this has got to (laughs) go so um so as much as I love talking about your process and journey as a writer. I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the book itself, at least a little bit. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so there's this um, this tension that I've noticed between the desire to acclimate to American culture and the desire to not leave ancestral traditions behind that seems to be a common thread in a lot of um, immigration and migration narratives, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, sure. Was that something you felt in writing Circa? Sure. You know, um, you know, in the I, I deliberately set this book in the 80s because I wanted nothing to do with the phone <laughs> or mm-hmm. or email or, you know, or <laughs> technology. I wanted it to I wanted to remember the time or remind people of the time when we all still wrote to each other and had landlines. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and what a different experience that was, right? And that was just like my motivator for that. I was like, you know, I really, um, I want so much to, to hearken back to a time where things were a little bit simpler. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it was such an effort to be in touch with people overseas you know their phones often didn't work or if they had them at all and and we would wait very impatiently by the mailbox for those blue aerogram letters you know from india and and it was just such a struggle to keep in touch and i think that people who like my parents immigrated from uh india before i was born 
but and we used to I was I'm very lucky I got to visit my my family and my grandparents a lot growing up and and so but I just would see like like how much they've left behind and how much I lost by growing up in the, in America and not getting to see my family like regularly right mm-hmm. and I think that's just a I think that's a even if even for Americans who who were born and raised here but have moved away from their home, you know, like it, that's a pretty universal theme. It's like, oh, I'm I'm missing out because I'm not there. I've branched out, you know. A lot of, um, you know, I I always try and remember that um, most of the world, you know, um, doesn't travel, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the world, you know, they. They grow up where they were born and and they they live their lives there and they die there and they haven't seen the world. And so we're the weird ones for leaving, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so <laughs> we're yeah. the for leaving. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I do think that um, it is interesting having it set in that time period where it is so much harder to communicate in a lot of ways. And it is easier to lose touch with people. It's easier to disappear. And disappearing seems to be something that runs through the novel a lot. Um, lots of, so many characters are trying right. to disappear. Um, Krishna succeeds entirely in disappearing. Neil partially succeeds. Um, and then Hera only ever dreams of disappearing. Um, so what did, you, what did you ultimately want to say about that act of disappearing? In circa. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I think people disappear in different ways, even when they're present, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like um I just wanted to kind of explore that idea that you know people disappear in death, right? But they also disappear in these all these other ways, even when they're present. Mm -hmm. And um, so yes, uh, you know, Neil was there but then he wasn't but mm-hmm. you know and, and even when he krishna, was there he wasn't entirely there exactly and krishna was like you know had her own struggles and and i was really just interested in the ways that people disappear and if you think about the mom and and the dad you know they left right they disappeared from their familial surroundings and their extended families and so um and I feel like we do that in certain ways as people, right? And I was just really interested in that. And and also, you know, my the friend that I wrote this book for, you know, she disappeared, right? She died. And so mm-hmm. I and nothing I will ever do or say can bring her back, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. But I do think Circa is a is a very good testament to the friendship that you had with her. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um so what's um what's next for you? Is there anything on the horizon? Any new works? Anything that you don't know what it's going to be exactly, but that you know you want to say with your fiction or poetry? Oh, thank you. Um, I um, it turns out Mariner <laughs> has <laughs> bought my third book, and it's coming out in 2024. It's called Midnight at the War. Amazing. And- yeah, thank you. And I am hard at work <laughs> trying to finish it up for my December 1st deadline. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it is about a um, female war correspondent, um, a brown skinned female war correspondent. And uh, and it is um, it is about, you know, who gets to tell the truth in the news 
and um, what that looks like. And um, especially, you know, um, so often the people who make decisions on a day-to-day basis on what is considered news, you know, they are really looking at it from a point of privilege and Generally, the people who are assigning the stories don't look like the people they're assigning them for, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And um, so that really interested me um, as a reporter. Um, and um, and also, um, I am, uh, so I'm, I've, I've abandoned the second person for this, and it's back to a first-person narrative, <laughs> <laughs> at least for now. For now. <laughs> right. And um, so, yeah, so that's what I'm working on right now, and um, let's, let's see how it goes. Amazing. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Michael. <laughs> Um, so, Debbie, I just have one more question for you, and this is a question that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast, um, which if you've listened to our episodes, you may know what I'm going to ask you. Um, but since this podcast is primarily for teachers and their students, who sure. was your favorite teacher? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that the one that had the most impact on me, I, it's a tie, but I'll... <laughs> So the first one that had the most impact on me was Mrs. Heath in my fifth grade English teacher at St. Thomas More Elementary in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, because she introduced us to poetry and we did our first poems in her class. So I wrote my first bad haiku for her, um, but she was so encouraging and she just introduced us to the wide world of poetry. I'm like, people do this full time? Like, really? So I was like amazed. But I have to say my like the most impact teacher I ever had was Lucille Clifton by far she just she was just amazing she was this amazing listener and an amazing teacher and she just has a such a command of you know um of writing and and uh you know being able to um you know as she put it to make a myth out of yourself and rather than write confessions, right, to, to make a myth and tell a story that people can relate to. And, she, you know, I, I'm always going to be grateful to everything she taught me. Make, make a myth out of yourself. I love that. That's such a, a nice idea as far as writing. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Um, thank you for that answer. And thank you for joining us on this podcast. It's been, it's been really nice talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. We are happy to have you. <laughs> You enjoy your weekend. Thank you, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.